0: Hey everybody. Welcome to a regenerative future with Matt powers. This again is an excerpt from our future 2021 to warm up for our future 2022 this January, the free conference, click the link below, sign up. It's a free conference. That's going to be incredible. I'm inviting everyone to it. We have over 40 speakers involved. It's going to be amazing, inspiring, hopeful, leading permaculture experts visionaries like Charles Eisenstein, pioneers like Rosemary Morrow. So many people are going to be involved. It's incredible. The numbers keep continuing to rise. So sign up below, click the link below and check it out. It's going to be so much fun. And this talk is starting your own regenerative design business. So without any further ado,
1: here we go. It is encouraging to me that you've all shown up for this conference, the Our Future Conference. I'm Eric Olson, and welcome to my talk on starting a regenerative design company. I'm encouraged because we all know that the Earth is facing great peril. We know that humanity is at a crossroads when it comes to energy production, consumption, agriculture, landscape, all the ways in which we interact with our environment are really called into question around, are they regenerative? And our economy and the way that it's built and the way that it's set up is an extractive, destructive force. And this conference focuses on how do we take the reins of our economy back? How do we create light, right livelihood for ourselves and our community and do so in such a way that we can heal soil and water, we can reforest the land, we can rehydrate the aquifers and bring about a regenerative renaissance in the near future. So today I'm going to talk about a few ways in which you can do that, in ways in which you can care for your life and the earth by creating your own right livelihood. This is something that I've done in my life. I feel fortunate that I came upon the path of permaculture when I was 19 years old and immersed myself in the garden and learned ways of natural design and regeneration and have been able to develop a career uh, in this field and in this way. So, I want to share some tips for you today in how to develop and grow. A couple different types of regenerative design businesses, some low-hanging fruit, some approaches that I think are pretty easily accessible to many folks who are in these fields, even if you're starting out, um, with a goal of getting as many of you and as many of us into a regenerative economy, meaning that the work that we do to pay for our bills, care for our families is actively building soil, catching water, growing food, connecting natural ecosystems in a regenerative way. We all deserve to be in the garden, in a garden like this. And this is the kind of landscapes that we can create through doing this kind of work. This can be our work in the world and the work that sustains us, both energetically, spiritually, and also financially. So just a quick thing about me, I'm Eric Olson, I've been a permaculture designer, teacher, and activist since 1999. In 2005, I founded Permaculture Artisans, that was my first uh, ecological business, my first regenerative design business, and we're now a seven-figure regenerative business um, with 20-plus staff. We have uh, designed and installed and managed hundreds and hundreds of landscapes, mostly throughout California, but also in other parts of the world. And it is an absolute joy in being able to create a company that not only cares for Earth, but also cares for its people, um, that can care for this beautiful, amazing staff. And uh, and help and support our clients and our community, the school communities, the business communities, the cities and the counties. We've worked with all those different types of circles, all those different organizations and institutions to develop regenerative landscapes um, throughout our bioregion. In 2012, I founded Permaculture Skill Center. We're on five acre demonstration site in Sebastopol, California. We've taught hundreds of students around the world in regenerative business design. We used to have on-site vocational training programs called the um, the Ecological Landscape Immersion Program, as well as the Farm School. Those have been closed down, and we now have some online schools, which I'll talk about later. And um, since 2016, I've also written seven books couple children's books, couple um, adult coloring books, all based in nature, eco-literacy education, and um, also uh, a self-help book and a short overview on ecological landscape professionalism. And I'll, I'll share a little bit about that at the end. So that's just a little bit about me. Um, you can look me up on Google if you'd like to find out more, but let's get on into what it is we're talking about today. So I'm going to go through a couple of regenerative landscape design business models, um, that you can take, uh, and, uh, and, and use for yourself to develop your career path. Maybe it's a side job. Maybe it's a full-time job. Um, a way for you to get into this regenerative economy fast, effectively, uh, and, and start doing this work for your work for your livelihood. So, One of the kinds of uh, models we'll talk about is landscape design consultation in business. And I should say that while I'm going to talk mostly today about best practices for starting and sustaining these kinds of businesses, uh, this is all within that frame of regenerative design. Um, So I'm not going to get into actual design processes and uh, permaculture principles and Um, and, and that aspect too much because that's saved for another talk and, uh, and, and another opportunity, but this is more about helping you pull the obstacles out of the way Um, the ones that keep that tell you that you can't become a professional designer or professional consultant in the world of regenerative design. This is to inspire you and empower you to pull those obstacles out of the way and go ahead and take that leap. So we'll get into landscape design consultation businesses. We'll also talk about a landscape maintenance business, which is probably the easiest business you can start right away in, in this regenerative work. And another business which i 'm not going to talk a lot about in this talk because it would, it would take hours to to really break this down in an effective way, is the landscape installation so we won 't cover installation much in this talk, but um, i 've talked about this plenty in the past, and I have a lot of um, educational resources for you so if, if that 's something you 're interested in, you can follow up um, You can follow up with me and and we can get you that information so before you decide what kind of regenerative design business you want, you need to understand your own context. Um, not every one of these pathways is necessarily going to be a perfect fit for you. And so you want to do a personal assessment first and foremost. Um, what are your skills? Not only what skills do you have now, um, but what are you passionate about? What are you excited to learn about? What are you? Ex- what learning edges are you excited to grow into? Um, because, those will help provide this this contextual decision making framework for moving forward in this, making decisions about what kind of regenerative business you want to start for yourself um what do you need what are your needs <clears throat> these could be financial these could be emotional these could be physical space um, <clears throat> it could be health related you know what are your needs what are your skills what are your passions and then what about your bioregion um, we're all coming from different places. I'm in coastal California, so we're in a Mediterranean type climate, um, very coastal influenced, very diverse soils, um, some topography, some wetlands, and also we're in a big agricultural culture, right? So um culture is also going to help frame your context. And in my community, in my bioregion, um, permaculture design services is very sought after. And, um, and there's financial resources in this community because of our, um, juxtaposition to the San Francisco Bay area, um, which has a lot of wealth. And so in our particular region, we are really ripe and ready for, um, for creating these kind of businesses and finding a lot of success. Now, depending on where you come from, things may be different. You might be in a colder climate. You might be in a desert. You're, um, bioregionally. <laughs> there may be some other things in effect you know what kinds of problems are arising in your in your community in the ecosystem in which you live um identify some of these problems and possibly you can create a regenerative design business that addresses some of the issues that your bioregion is facing or your community is facing and culturally have a good sense of the cultural framework in which you live as well. Um, maybe you're in an urban city, maybe you're in a, a, a rural ranching community. Um, what's the mindset of folks in your bioregion, in your area, in the culture that you live in, uh, are they going to take to certain kinds of languages better than others? The more that you can break down these different contextual elements for yourself, the more you can create a business that matches and fits and solves the problems in your community and in your culture, in your bioregion, uh, where you can really thrive and, and, and grow into that. You don't necessarily want to take exactly what I'm doing here in California and export that, uh, you know, into Alaska or into the tropics. Um, you you want to really first and foremost, listen and observe and have a deep awareness of your context. And and what I'm going to share with you today, a lot of this is baseline patterns that you absolutely can't implement, uh, but your approach might be adjusted depending on, on your context. So let's start with talking about professional consultations. If you have some experience in regenerative design gardening farming construction restoration work maybe you know a lot about plants maybe you know a lot about soil or a lot about water um a professional consultation service could be a really easy low-hanging fruit type of offer that you can make to clients in your community um this is just a picture of my place uh this what what you see here is the Sunseeker app which i have on my iphone and um and what this allows us to do is look at where the sun is moving at any given time of the day and at different times of the year and you can see that blue line there in the middle that's uh, winter solstice i'm here in the northern hemisphere so that's the lowest possible uh direction that the sun will be and so you can see here in this picture that at at about uh, 9 30 a.m i'll have my first sun on winter solstice in the spot where i'm standing and by 2 p.m on winter solstice i'll be in shade and it'll be shade for the rest of the day this is the kind of information that you want to gather when you go out on a consultation Uh, this is helps you in your design process it also helps you coach and support clients in their understanding of the ecology and so let's get into a few of the best practices for professional consultation. So first off, it's, uh, I'm giving this talk here, in, and it's uh, January 2021. We're still in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, and so... While in-person consultations are absolutely the best option and moving forward years to come, that'll probably be the mainstay approach to consultation. We have moved some of our consultation online this last year and that has also been effective. And for folks who want to reach a wider audience, national international audience doing a, um, a virtual consultation, um, could still be a viable business path. Now, obviously, there are some real drawbacks to not being on the site. Um, For one, I can't stand on the site and use my sun seeker and see the sun azimuth and make those determinations. Um, I could have a client do that or someone on site do that for me. Um, But in-person is clearly the best to be able to, to grab some soil and feel the texture and smell it to see all of the micro patterns, what kind of fungi are sprouting up, Uh, what what wildlife species are visiting the area. There's just so much that is key to so much information and data and understanding of a site that you can only get from being on site. So that's absolutely the best possible way. If you need to do it virtually though, there are a few tools at your disposal. Uh, One, do your research, uh, get any maps that the client may have or any maps that maybe county jurisdictions or city planners may have about the site. Look at satellite imagery, look at soils data, look at water data, look at vegetation dominant vegetation type. Um, there's a lot of information that's pretty readily, readily available around a lot of different landscapes throughout the planet that you can find and gather uh, virtually um, as part of a consultation process to, in, to provide that for a client. We've been using Zoom as our medium for doing consultations with clients because we can use, we can get on and do screen shares. We can talk to each other and look at maps and look at satellite imagery, look at photos that clients are providing, look at soil analysis and things like that, and start to determine some of the patterns of the land. Um, first and foremost, when you are consulting, is you're, it's not so much a time for design as much as it is a time to gather information, to do your site assessment, do your site analysis. That being said, clients do want some kind of service. They, they're not necessarily going to be satisfied. And I've been doing this 20 years and I've just seen it all. And I And I know that there's times where I was too much of the listener, too much of the observer in a consultation and I didn't give anything to the client. I just asked questions and gather a lot of information. And that wasn't a great selling point to have the client bring me back. You know, they wanted something out of the consultation, especially if they're paying for it. Um, we charge a hundred dollars an hour for consultations in, at my company, permaculture artisans. So Balance that gathering of data, gathering of information, with also providing some feedback as you feel moved to do so. Um, really important part of the consultation process. Generally, I try to do this before the consultation, but if I have to do it during the consultation, that's okay too. Which is to create and ensure an intake form with the client. So, an intake form, you know, it has your your basic information name of the client contact information, the address of the property, you know, that kind of stuff, but it can also have a goals articulation. You can ask the client to articulate what kind of goals that they have for their site, for their project. Your intake form can also have, um, a timeline, you know, what, what are the clients hoping to achieve in what sort of time frame? you can ask about budget. Um, I know it's for a lot of folks talking about money is, is uncomfortable. Um, but when you start to move into a design process, when you start to move into an installation process, having an understanding of your client's budget is actually really vital. So that way you can really, you know, hit the mark. You can design or build to their budget, or at least have good expectations of what their budget is at any given time. And you can help them strategize some sort of phasing design or phasing installation moving forward so create and share that intake form i'll just say one more thing about the intake form is you can also have information about topography soils plant type water sources and things like that Um, different folks some folks keep these really simple sometimes they're a lot more involved it really depends on your style um and, and and sometimes we do it twice sometimes we have that really simple one that we, that we ask the client to fill out before the consultation. And then we have that more involved one that we fill out during the consultation, during the site assessment. And that gives us what we need moving into the design process. Also, look, know what you don't know. And I know that can be hard. It's kind of a paradox. But especially if you're starting out, it's not necessarily helpful to to misguide the client and in, in letting them think that you know about something when you really don't. It's much more powerful to be an observer, to gather data, gather information, speak about the things you feel strongly about, that you have knowledge or experience around. And if there's something, say the client asks, well, I want to build a pond. Um, what do you think is a good pond site? And you may say, well, that's the kind of thing that I need more time to to." more information and more data. I need to analyze topography a little bit more. Also, um, I generally bring in a, uh, a specialist to help me in designing ponds. So, so it's okay to communicate to clients that you have a network that you can draw from and to not have to be the authority in every single aspect. That being said, you also want to exude confidence during a consultation. So By admitting to things that you don't know and that you can draw in an expert for, it gives more power to everything else that you're sharing with the client because they know that you'll take responsibility for what you don't know, which means that when you're sharing with confidence, the expertise that you have, it just is much more powerful and the the client can feel that confidence. So exude confidence, um, but don't lie about what you don't know because that could catch you up. You know, it could that you could go down a rabbit hole during the consultation where it's clear you don't actually have the information and knowledge, and that's the client might lose a little trust with you. So this is really about building trust. Consultations, if it's the kind of thing that you want to have a follow up, you know, a consultation that moves into a design process or an ongoing consultant relationship. You really want to build trust. And so know what you don't know. Um, this is a little, this isn't exactly the opposite of that phrase. Fake it till you make it. I've done fake it till you make it for 20 years, still doing it. Um, and th- that's not necessarily what I'm saying here. That may be exuding confidence that you know, we could definitely design a pond for you. I'm going to pull in a specialist to help me with that. That's kind of a fake it till you make it. You're still being honest. Um, But you know that you got to bring someone else in, in in order to do that. So I hope that's all really clear. Again, this is really about building trust with the client in this entire consultation process is about gathering information and data about building a relationship with the client, building trust with the client. It's also about um, uh, being able to provide some measure of feedback to the client, whether it's consulting a little bit about their soil or their water situation, making some kind of general suggestions that maybe aren't set in stone, but just, oh, this may be a way that I would approach your vegetable garden. It takes some further research into, you know, your soils and such, but here's some here's some ideas we can work with. Being able to provide some kind of feedback to the client is really helpful. And then what do you want to achieve? So, so what I mean by that is, is this just a one-off consultation or do you want to move into a design uh, process where you actually do the design? Do you want to have ongoing consultation? Do you want to do installation or management work? What is it that you want to achieve with these consultations? Okay. That's part of what comes out of understanding your context and something you should be really clear of going into the consultation. Sometimes what'll come up is that you'll find that, you know, I'm not actually a good match for this client, or I'm not a good match for this landscape, or, you know, something the client said actually ticked me off. Like, I actually feel upset or offended now. These are things that are, is also part of that consultation process. It's a screening process. They're screening you for whether it's, you're somebody they wanna, you know, have an ongoing relationship with, and you're also screening them for the same thing. Do you want to have an ongoing relationship with this person or these people or this community? So understand what it is you want to achieve and be ready to throw it out the window if it doesn't seem like a good fit during the consultation. But at the very least document everything that comes up during the consultation, taking notes, taking pictures, and because you're going to want to follow up if, if the relationship has, uh, some potential, then you're going to want to follow up with that client. And you're, and you'll want to, at the end of the consultation, uh, ideally at the end of the consultation, you'll want to give the client a few next steps in many ways. The first consultation is a sales opportunity, um, an opportunity to create an investment in a relationship with that client. And so at the end of the consultation, um, be really clear. I am going to write up a summary of the consultation along with added um, ideas and suggestions that, that um, have come up that I haven't had a chance to share. I'm going to give you a consultation report or, or if, it, if everything feels really smooth and great, and it seems like they want to design, maybe it's I'm going to follow up with a design proposal. Let's see if we can agree upon a design scope. We can get into the design process. So have a sense of what you want to achieve, document as much as possible, and then follow up, follow up as soon as you can. If it's a client you want that you really want, um, don't wait weeks or months, uh, you you know, get back to them within a few days, get back to them within a week at the very least, at least letting them know what to expect, um, forthcoming from you and make sure that you don't let that relationship lie ultimately you want to listen deeply to the land and to your clients and i one of the reasons why i'm really emphasizing this is because part of your job as a regenerative design consultant is to be the voice of the land and sometimes when you're out there with clients they might they may make some suggestions that seem very counter to the ecological information that you're gathering while you're on the land. Um, maybe someone says, I want to put my house right there and it's on top of a bog or there's a spring right there, or they want to cut down this old growth, uh, tree to, to get a better view, you know, things like this during your first consultation, you're not necessarily going to tell them those are bad ideas. You may say, "Mm, let's think more about that. The reason why I say that is because you can turn a client off really quickly if you down all of their ideas during the consultation, but you can give them a little red flag that this is something to discuss later. So listen deeply to the land. Let the ecological voice of the land um, speak to you and be that uh, that voice for the land to the client. But often if it's stuff that may be challenging some big ideas of the clients, I may wait a little bit. I might put that in a consultation report. I might wait till we're in a design process, or if the relationship doesn't seem good, then maybe I'll just you know kind of down down their ideas um, as needed. Um, but the other thing you're doing is you are listening deeply to your client, remember. While you're the voice of the land and you're observing natural patterns, you also need to observe the client's patterns. Um, if, because you're building a business, you are creating a sale. And so what are the clients really, really need? Can you help them develop their context? Can you help? Can you get down beyond the fact that they want a really cool ecological garden? And get down to oh, they want a place to retreat because they have a health issue, and so this is a, this is for their health, or they have a family and this is a place for their children to play, or they have do- beloved dogs and this is going to be a dog wonderland. You know what are the context of what's the context of the client? What is it they're asking for? Read between the lines. Assess the client as much as you assess the land. Here's just a few pro tips. You know, one, be professional. You want to show up professional. What what does that mean? Be on time. If you're going to be late, call them. I know this seems really simple, but unfortunately, the permaculture and regenerative um, design world does have a little bit of a stigma Around some sort of subculture hippie thing. And we're pushing back against that by being extremely professional. Um, Have very clear expectations going into the consult. Let them know what you're charging, how long you expect to be there, what you're hoping to get out of the consultation. What you want to provide the client as part of the consultation. So be really clear with expect expectations. And then when you have that follow-up, be really clear. I'm going to have a design proposal to you within two weeks. I'm going to have a consultation report by the end of the week. Let them know exactly what you're doing and how much it will cost. So that way you don't run into issues down the line. And then be prepared especially if this is new to you, if this work is new to you, you may want to do a little research before you go onto the consultation. Maybe look at a satellite image, look at some maps, um, maybe even Google the client's name, understand a little bit about them. Um, so go in as prepared as possible. Maybe if you, if you like to take notes, um, have a clipboard, um, Maybe you have a couple tools, you know, you're going to want to dig in the soil and, and, and check out the um, type of soil that it is. So maybe you have a little digging knife or a little trowel or something with you. What, what is it for you within your context, how you want to do it? What does it mean to be prepared? You know, do that. When you show up professional on time, you have clear expectations, you're prepared clients really, really resonate with that. They feel taken care of, they feel your confidence and they feel your care. So that's a bit about consultations. Obviously there's a lot more that could be covered in that, but I'm just giving you a rundown of some best practices, some pro tips so that you can, You know, so that so you can get going on this. So let's now move a little bit from the consultation into the actual design process. Now, again, I'm not getting into the actual regenerative design methodologies and processes. You can find that elsewhere. Specifically, what I'm going to talk about right now is how you engage a professional relationship around a design process with a client. How do you make that sale? How do you set up those expectations? And what are a few approaches that you might take? So um, first and foremost is the design proposal. I would highly suggest that you don't ever enter into a relationship, a design relationship with a client where they're going to pay you for design services without having some kind of written contract. I know that sometimes the relationship seems so sweet and so trusting and so wonderful. And it's like, we don't really need written contract. I mean, this is awesome. Let's just um, do a handshake or these days, maybe it's a a bow or, (laughs) or it's just a thumbs up have some sort of written contract because inevitably your conversations with clients will, things will get lost in translation, which is just human nature. Um, They're going to hear things that you didn't say. You're going to think they understood things that you did say, and it could cause problems. So have some kind of written contract. Um, And within that contract, here are a few things that are really important to have in that contract. Um, First and foremost, the scope Okay. You can see this picture, uh, here that I have with you. That's a hundred acre project. Um, that design that you're looking at right there. Now, this client, now this client wanted to have a scope of that scale. They're on 500 acres. Notice that I'm not showing 500 acres, right? So we, through our conversations are negotiating through consultations just realize that, you know, this hundred acres of the prime farmland production area of these farmers um, and these ranchers, this was the area to focus on. Now, um, the same can be said on a a smaller scale. Let's say you're working with a suburban client. All they've got is uh, um, an eighth of an acre of a lot, um, a typical suburban lot, eighth of an acre, maybe a quarter of an acre, but they only want you to design a vegetable garden. They're not asking you to design the whole property, or they only want you to design the front entryway to the house. This is where that convert that consultation, conversation, that negotiation, the clear expectations, what is the scope the clients actually want? Now you could try to sell them on a bigger scope. You could say, hey, you know, I really advise that we design the whole property because this is a regenerative design. We look we think holistically. And everything relates to everything else, and so it's hard to design just a small part. You could try to sell the client on that, and they might go for it. But they may also say, "No, no, I have a small budget. I really just need to figure out my front entryway because the back is already done." You know, um, whatever it might be. So get very, very clear on the scope. That's the very first thing you need to have represented in your in your proposal, your design proposal. <laughs> Oh, and let me just say, the design proposal is a contract that you send to them that has all of this written out that they are going to sign and you're going to sign, and it is going to be your agreement for the design process. The second thing thing you need to have in your design proposal is what it's going to cost. How much are you charging per hour? How much time do you think it's going to take for each item on the proposal? So, for instance, um, often I'll have a design proposal. It'll have a concept design, which would be like the picture I have here. Um, That shows kind of everything. Then it may even have a detail for a graywater, let's say, where we're going to do a a zoomed-in detail about a graywater system. Maybe it's going to have a planting plan, different than a sort of general thing that you see on the concept plan, but an actual planting plan that shows the exact species, and where they're going to be placed in the design. That's a big body of design work. Often, projects don't have planting plans because they want to start with the concept design and then move into the actual specific plant locations later. So understand that as part of your scope um, you are the the graphic deliverables. So you may have them in line items. Uh, Concept plan, gray water detail, planting plan. How much is the concept design going to cost? How much is the gray water detail going to cost? How much is the planting plan going to cost? Um, then you can add it all up for a, for a total cost. Now, the thing about a design process is that it's fluid and there may be things that come up during the process. So you can approach costing this out in different ways. Sometimes I do a range to let the client know that this particular, depending on the client, um, you know, part of your client assessment, you may realize that this client loves to ask questions. They send me two page emails. They love to talk. And so a client like that, you, what you gather from that information is that, there's going to be a lot of communication during this design process. So you're going to want to add time to that. You might even make meetings with client as a time and materials budget item, which means that you're just going to charge the client what it costs to do the meetings because you don't really know how long meetings are going to go or how many meetings there'll be because this is a very engaged client who has lots of questions and really wants to talk things out that might be different than another client archetype which is totally common which is one that's very hands off they just trust you do your thing i'm not going to ask a lot of questions i just want to get it i just want you to get it done a client like that maybe there isn't a lot of engagement and they won't spend a lot of time asking a lot of questions so when you start to think about cost and pricing you could do a number of things you know, first assess your client understand their personality type and second, um, if if there's an aspect to the design that requires a lot of extra research, um, and it's kind of unknown how much time it's going to take, there's a couple rabbit holes you have to jump into before you can give a, an effective design. Well, then you might add a range. You might say, well, for the for the. Uh, for this particular graywater detail that you want, uh, we need to figure a few things out about the soil and about the location of the septic tank, and and um, kind of look into what the county regulations are. So I'm going to say it's going to take anywhere between 10 and 15 hours um, to do this. So now you have a range. If you're charging $100 an hour, it's a thousand to 1,500 um, range for this this graywater detail. So then your grand total can have a range as well. So that's a, that's a little device that we've used that's been super effective um, in, again, managing expectations, having clear expectations. It's always worse if... Really hear me out here. It's much worse if you underbid a project and then you either have to eat the time later. It's like, oh, I thought it was only going to take 10 hours, but it took 20 hours but I'm afraid to charge the client the extra 10 hours. So now you're eating it or you go try to charge the client after, after you had a very clear expectation of the scope and the cost. And you say, Oh, it's actually was twice as much. It's, it's 2000 now, not a thousand. Um, they might fire you on the spot. You know, it may not build towards a trusting relationship. And these are the kind of things that happen all the time in this kind of a business so um, so it's really important to I'm um, I'm gonna say it you know pad your proposals meaning give yourself a little extra time a little extra budget than you think it might take because something might come up and then at least you've provided that expectation and also create a range if need be um, that encompasses that potentially extra time like I think it'll only take 10 hours but it might take 15. So I should probably say 10 to 15. Um, so your scope, what is the scope of the project? How much is it going to cost your proposed timeline? I can't tell you how often I've had clients where you say oh, you get the design proposal. Okay. And then a week later, they're like, so can I see the design? And you have to respond and say, well, it's going to take me at least three more weeks to get the design and they freak out because they thought they were going to have the design within a week. You know, just be clear about that. Have that in your proposal. Uh, it's going to be four to six weeks, or it's going to be two to three weeks. You know, whatever the scope is, whatever the project is, whatever your context is, those are all going to be drivers for understanding that. And then the graphic deliverables. Um Are you providing a a digital colored render like the one that you see here now? Are you doing a hand-drawn black and white drawing? Are you providing a planting plan and a concept plan and the detail? What are all of the physical design documents that, that you're actually giving to the client? What are they? What kind of format are they going to be in? That is part of managing those expectations. Make sure that's really clear in the proposal. This is going to be a hand-drawn, non-color concept plan. Totally fine. There's not necessarily one better than another. I'm not advocating one way or another, but just let the client know. So that way, they're not like disappointed when they see something that they didn't expect or when they expected two or three different um, deliverables and you only thought you were providing the one. So be really clear on that. Obviously, like we talked about in the site analysis, I mean, in the consultation period, um, start with the site analysis and like I had mentioned before that deeper intake of clients. Okay, now you're in the design process. Now go ahead and take two hours to get in a meeting with the clients and like really go into their dreams, their contacts, their goals, even to the, even the minutia of, um, you know, what kinds of food do they like to eat? What kinds of flowers do they like? You know, what landscape aesthetics are they drawn to? This is all part of that deeper intake of the clients because you really want to hit it out of the park when you provide that design to them. And the more you understand about them and their preferences and what they like and all of that, the more you're going to hit it out of the park with the design but it has to be said that before you can do any design you need to know the land you need to understand um the soil and the water and the look in the climate and all the aspects of the existing site so in your design proposal make sure that more site analysis beyond the initial consultation that more of that site analysis and site assessment is built into your proposal You don't have to call it out specifically. Some people do that. they'll have a line item that says um, site analysis, 10 hours, $1,000. Sometimes that creates issues with clients because they don't understand what that is. And they're like, oh, I'm paying you to just hang around on the land. You have to kind of defend that part of the process. An easier way to do it is to just fold it into the concept design. Um, I'm going to provide a master plan concept and within the hours that you put aside in there is your time to do deeper research site analysis. It's up to you, your preferences, how you want to lay that out, but ensure that you have that part of the process built into your design. You're not just going to start drawing a map of your cool ideas. You, as regenerative designers, as ecologically um, conscious people is our job to harmonize with the natural world. It's our job to take the time to listen to the birds, to understand the soils, to observe the different vegetation types in their seasons. So make sure that you have that built in. And then as part of the design process, know that it's unlikely that you're going to come up with a design concept and that's it. You're going to give it to the client and the client's going to look at it and be like, wow, this is everything I want. Everything I hoped it would be done. We're done. the designs done. That's probably not going to happen. Most likely you're going to provide a design to the client and they're going to say, "Mm, I don't know about this. Tell me about that. You know, they're going to have feedback and you're going to need to do a revision. So, before you get to a point where you're doing a really polished design, like for instance, before you color render a design, if you're providing that as a service, before you color render or before you put it all, do all the exact um, locations and stuff, it is worth it to first start out with a rough concept and present that to the client. This is like a middle part of the process. Say, okay. I've listened to your your dreams. I have an understanding of your context. I've really gathered data on the land. Um, here's the, the, an initial idea that I've come up with for your design. You, you can make it nice. You can make it beautiful, but don't take that extra time to polish it perfect. Um, get it to the client, have a discussion, get their feedback, and then go back and now integrate feedback and now start to polish up the design based on that first meeting. Um, So yeah, based on the feedback, create the final plan and know this, uh, the reason why I put final in quotation marks here is because, you know, no design is ever done. You're never really done designing. You might be done in terms of your relationship with a client, you fulfilled your part of the bargain and maybe you never see that client again. And so you're done, but understand as ecological designers that there is no static moment in time on the land. There's not a, there's not a moment where everything is this way, my final design and now it stays like this forever. The forces of nature are well, always be intervening and changing the forces of, uh, also of human nature will always be intervening and changing things and so these are systems that are always in states of succession always in states of evolution so just know that going in and help coach your clients in understanding that too um but for the sake of your design proposal for the sake of your uh, agreement your contract your relationship you're once you've gone through some of that feedback rough concept phase now you're going to provide the final plan and even after you give the final plan there's still going to be a few little changes and revisions if not big changes and revisions so in your budget when you're thinking about how much time you're going to take to present projects to clients when you think about Um, how long it's going to take you to do the work, how many times you're going to have to revise your design. Um, Leave a little bit of space for a final, final revision process where you take your final design plan and you still have to make a few changes and adjustments. It always happens. It always comes up. Um, I'm telling you from deep experience, this is exactly how it's going to happen um, with clients in most cases. So make sure that you have the budget for that um, worked in. Okay, so a few pro tips in creating that professional design relationship. Um, First off, you're going to want to balance your client's goals, the ecological functions and services of the land, and your own creativity. What I mean by that is that while you might be excited and passionate about mandalas, your client may not be. So while you may want to be creative to put a bunch of mandala designs there, if you know that it's not something your client is into, don't do it. Don't, don't put a mandala design when you know the client's not into it. Um, find, th- find another way to feed your creativity in that process. Also, what almost always comes up is balancing the client's goals and ecological function. Now, people like to build things, roads, houses, sheds, patios, decks. And so if those kinds of structures are part of the scope of your design, meaning that within where you're designing, these things are are there, these kinds of structures are there. This isn't, you know, you're not just designing a reforesting some hillside, you're incorporating the home and hearth of a, of a family or of a community, then know that sometimes ecological function will be sidelined for human infrastructure or for a particular client's goals. Maybe those clients really want a soccer field and you're like, no, 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 no lawns, no fields. These are water guzzlers. And, but they're like, but that is really important to me. well, In that case, it might be better for you to incorporate the field into your design rather than just say, I won't touch that. Because as an ecological designer, if you incorporate their soccer field into your design, well, you might be able to incorporate some water harvesting structures off the soccer field. You might be able to encourage them to not use any chemical fertilizers or pesticides. You might steer them towards native grasses. Um, There's a lot of ways that you can help meet the client's goals and have as much ecological function as possible, even if it's not something that you would do if it was your place. So you got to, have to balance all those goals and remember that you are providing a service. Ultimately, if you're going to have a successful business, you're going to need to meet clients goals and, and, you know, make them as happy as possible. Um, another pro tip here is timely communication throughout this whole process. You don't want to just say, okay, you know, sign the design proposal and then we're going to work on design Bye, and then you don't talk to them for two months. You don't let them know what's going on. You don't follow up with them. You don't let them know where, where you're at in the phase. Like if you keep your client in the dark and they have no clue what's happening, then resentment might build up and it's going to affect your relationship and the trust that they had in you. And that it's going to that energy is going to be carried into when you're providing design presentations and things like that. They're going to be questioning more. So even if you have you don't have a deliverable for them, um, you might give them a call two weeks in and say, "Hey, just want to let you know I've started working on your design. I'm really excited." Um, has anything changed for you? Um, just wanted to let you know that I should have an initial uh, revision. I mean an initial rough draft in another two weeks to provide for you. A phone call like that to a client, it just eases their worries, it creates that clear expectation. And maybe something happened in your life. Maybe you originally said it was gonna be two weeks, but actually you needed four weeks because your kid got sick and had to stay home from school and 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 whatnot. So have that just have Timely communication throughout the entire process um, so that the client isn't filling in the blanks of your disconnection um, and, and building up resentment. Um, And then when it comes to paint, getting paid for designs um, a progress payment structure is my preference. So what that means is, so generally we have a start of work contract, um, a start of work payment, excuse me. So when they sign the contract, um, let's say it's a five thousand dollar project. We may ask for five hundred dollars up front to sign the contract. It's a it's a retainer. It also helps you put aside the time and energy um, to start working. Or maybe it's a thousand dollars upfront, um, and so you may start with that initial funds, knowing that it's going to take you maybe oh, you know two, three, four, five weeks before you have a rough draft, a concept to provide the client. Um, so then this is where it gets tricky. So you may have that initial payment, which you're going to have to, you know, they're paying ahead of time. So now when you invoice them, your invoices need to reflect the fact they already paid you a thousand dollars. So they're not, so they're not going to pay double on that. Uh, Second thing is most likely you're going to want to provide them with some deliverable before you charge them. So, you can get yourself into trouble. If you haven't, if let's say you've worked a whole bunch on the design plan, you've put in 40 hours on a design plan, but you don't have anything to present to them yet. And you go and you ask for payment on that 40 hours, but you haven't shown them anything yet. There, that, that could freak them out. I've done that before. I don't recommend it. Better is to get that initial payment at the time of the contract proposal Then work on the design. Get to that rough concept phase where you do an initial presentation knowing that there's a lot to change. You just, am I going in the right direction? Give them something. At that point that you give them something, now you can invoice for all that time that it took to do that. So generally you want to invoice for payments after you've given a deliverable. Um, And then obviously at the end, there's another moment for that too. So structure that how you want. However, you, you don't have to do what I'm saying, but however you structure it, make sure it's super, super clear with the client. If it's, I invoice you every two weeks, whether I give you a deliverable or not, make sure it's really clear with the client. Cause you just don't want this part of the process to get in the way of them having a, a great experience in, in the design process and loving your design. Um, so create some kind of progress payment structure for yourself. While well, I'm not going into the full design process, meaning how you actually do the design itself, I it does bear mentioning and a reminder that you're not a regular landscape designer. You're a regenerative designer. And so the kind of design process that we, are approach is about designing relationships. Um, You're designing relationships, not things. So I just wanted to just bear that in mind that through this process, the structures, the planting systems, the roads, the water harvesting, um, all of this is designed within a framework of a web of relationships and that the relationship between client and land is also part of your design process. Part of your design outcome is weaving that relationship between the stewards, the clients, the people on the land and the land itself. And almost above all else as ecological designers is harmonize with existing natural functions that we're composing with nature, not working against nature. And as the voice of the land, you get to hold that ground uh, in your design process. So remember you're designing relationships, not things, harmonize with existing natural patterns and bring your client into that harmonization, bring your client into that deeper relationship with the landscape and the cycles and the wildlife and all the elements and patterns found there on that land. Now we're going to cover um, our final regenerative design business model and um, for this talk and that's landscape maintenance um a regenerative landscape maintenance this is a really really great niche most people a lot of people have to do some kind of maintenance for their landscape even if it's not a regenerative landscape people are cutting their lawns, they're cutting back trees, they're, you know, pulling weeds They're, you know, there's always some kind of activity required in almost all of our landscapes around our homes, our schools, our communities, our churches, our cities. Um, there's some kind of management that's always required. Um, even if it's just getting leaves out of a gutter or or, uh, or what have you. So there's a few entry points here into landscape maintenance. And the reason why I share pictures of all this abundance is that when you're operating a regenerative landscape maintenance business, it's likely that, that your clients have food plants and that you get to work with them and coach them through the process of harvesting and, you know, managing all of the yield that is coming out of their regenerative landscape. So first off, I think this is the easiest business to start. I mean, the very first time that I was ever paid to do do any kind of gardening or landscape work, the very, very first time, I was just sheet mulching somebody's lawn you know and that you might think of that as installation and and it is but generally sheep mulching is one of your landscape maintenance techniques um that you may employ multiple times in a year on a site sheep mulching the a pathway a few a couple times or or you know sheep mulching around some trees where the grasses were growing whatever um so you know i did the, i i was providing landscape maintenance services I'm really young at like 20 years old with not a ton of experience. I knew how to move mulch, right? I could put cardboard down and move mulch. I could pull weeds. I could spray compost tea. If I had access to some compost tea, I could put compost tea down and, and I could cut back lavender and I could cut back rosemary and I could deadhead flowers. There's a lot of very simple techniques that can be employed To get off the ground, right? And you could just provide, um, start providing services and caring for people's landscapes in an ecological way. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't spray chemicals, no chemical fertilizers. And maybe you're focusing on soil health, you're focusing on plant health and making things beautiful. So, easiest business. This is the easiest entryway with low experience to get in and start gaining the experience on the land while also, uh, you know, getting paid to do some of this work. So, uh, my friend and mentor, some of you may um, have heard of John Valenzuela. He's an incredible permaculture teacher, an incredible food forest designer, and um, just an amazing, amazing man. And I'll never forget that, you know, one day he told our class, he pulled out a, um, a pruning saw a pair of hand pruners and loppers, and said, "These three tools. This is all I need for my business. These three tools, I can do all my landscape maintenance work. I can prune trees, and I can create an entire business. You know, those are very affordable tools um, for a very powerful business model that uh, that you could you could start doing this year. One of the more advanced and benef- beneficial." aspects of doing a landscape maintenance business is that if you build a good relationship with a client, it could lead to design and installation if they know that you do that sort of thing. So you have that relationship with the client, you're maintaining their landscape, their garden, and they say, Hey, what what do you think? We wanted to add a couple more garden beds or we're putting a patio in over here. Do you have ideas for plantings around that patio? lots of different opportunities arise when you have an ongoing relationship with a client. Uh, so one of the maker breaks for a maintenance program is the schedule. You do not want this to be random. Clients do not want random and people are used to, especially when they hire someone for landscape, they're used to having an ongoing uh, predictable relationship. So Whether you're going to the client every week or every month or a few times a year, get super clear on that schedule. Literally write the days down, make sure that it works for the clients. Maybe it's uh, every second Tuesday of the month we come or it's um, every Friday morning from 8 to 12. Whatever it is, depending on the scope of the project, how much the clients want you there, there's a lot of different scope conversations here around how much maintenance you're doing for a client. Whatever that is, once you figure that out, um, create that weekly and monthly schedule and then stick to it. And then the way that we charge for uh, maintenance clients, generally it's not by the hour because you want to figure out, you want to figure in uh, travel costs, um, maybe you need to get some tools. Uh, you have some overhead costs because now you're running a business. You may have to hire a bookkeeper. You may need to have a phone line that's dedicated to the business. You may have a website dedicated to the business. You, maybe you even have an office or a place that you store your, your tools that you have to pay for. There's a lot of costs with a, a maintenance or an installation business that you can't directly charge a client for. So you have to work that into your fee structure, into your pricing structure. So instead of saying um, $25 an hour, uh, for me to be there. Maybe you say, well, we only do a minimum of a half a day because that way you can really design your schedule in in a way that works for you. It would It's really challenging if you're, you're going two hours to this client and then you got to drive over to this client and it's one and a half hours. And then you go over to this client and it's three hours. Your day's all chopped up, really hard to manage. And, and there's a lot of dead time in between in your day that you're not able to make any money. So creating half day or full day, um, pricing structure, it works so great. And maybe you say, okay, a half day, $200 for a half day, $400 for a full day, um, or something like that. Um, it's clear with the client, you're able to, to develop that schedule that meets those needs. So, you know that you're going to have a half day. So maybe it's really biweekly, not weekly, because the project isn't quite big enough. So you work that out once you assess the size and scope of a project, how much maintenance it will be required on a half day or full day type of schedule. So it really gives the clients options, gives you options. There's just a lot of different ways you can go with this, depending on the client and the project. Um, Like we said in the but the earlier uh, parts of the presentation: clear expectations, have a written contract, be super clear about what it is you're maintaining, the scope that you're maintaining. You know, are you mowing their lawn or is that for them to do? Are you pruning their trees or not? Um, there's a lot. There's a lot of things to consider, and we're going to talk more about that in a sec. The other bit is charge for materials separately. So the, there's this term time and materials, which means that. You only charge a client for the time or the cost of materials it took for something. So in this case, don't include the cost of materials into your half day or full day um, labor charges. Some days you may not need any materials. You show up, you've got your loppers and your saw and your pruners, and you're just cutting things back, just making it look beautiful. Just taking care of business that way. Other times Oh, we need to get some mulch here because we need to do some sheet mulching or we need to bring some compost, some fertility stuff over here. I got to add some bit to the irrigation system over there. When you do that, you're incurring more costs. You shouldn't be the one to eat those costs at that point You, you, because you've created the expectation with the client that they're going to charge for materials. You let them know, Hey, I, I got to do some irrigation work. Next time I show up, I'm going to bring some irrigation materials. Now, when you send them an invoice and it has two hundred dollars in irrigation parts, um, they get it. They know that's an extra charge that they've agreed to pay. So keep materials uh, separate when you're doing a maintenance business. So also keep in mind that while maintenance a schedule might include weekly or monthly, um, there are often on um, in landscapes and farms and things that you might be maintaining bigger projects that are just seasonal projects, like pruning the 50 fruit trees. Well, don't include pruning the 50 fruit trees as part of your half-day, full-day maintenance um, agreement, because there might be other maintenance things that still need to be done during those half-day, full-day agreements. And pruning these trees is like, wow, this is a big project. This is actually going to take four days to prune all these trees. So be really clear up front when you're assessing a site for a a potentially new client where you might mention, well, we're going to do twice a month on a half day. So maybe the client's paying you $400 a month. And, but once a year, we're going to do two day, a two day pruning or four day pruning or whatever. And that'll be charged at a time materials basis. And you work out how to, how to, how to, how to price it. You've given that clear expectation to the client you've even maybe put it on a calendar that you've given them or you've asked them or you've sent dates, potential dates, and um, even months in advance. Okay, yeah, every December um, we're going to do, you know, two days worth of pruning. So make sure that you have those kinds of conversations with the clients, M- make the expectations clear, identify those big seasonal projects that are, might be outside of your normal weekly, monthly agreement. And then go from there. And and the beauty of a maintenance business is that you're serving multiple clients and you can grow it however big or small as your context allows and and your passion and and goals for this. And uh, right now at Permaculture Artisans, we started the, the landscape maintenance business side of things started really late. So we first were doing design and installation for many, many years. And then about two years ago, we started our landscape maintenance business. So now after two years, we now have 35 maintenance clients that we serve every single month. We've got two full-time staff and three part-time staff on that. We've got two trucks servicing our our clients. Um, So it's pretty incredible. Um, When the, the beautiful thing about a landscape maintenance business is that it's three, potentially all year round. Uh, depending on your climate, if you're in a really, really cold climate, you might have to figure out something else um, in, the, in that really deep dark of winter. But, uh, but generally, you could create a maintenance business that's year-round. So whereas for design and installation businesses, those can be feast or famine. Sometimes you've got a lot of projects, too many projects. they can't get to them all. And sometimes you don't have that many projects and you're kind of looking for the next one and there's a little gap there where you don't have any income that can be pretty stressful. So this is a really solid, um, business model for regenerative landscaping, uh, that you can start really small and simple and, and grow from there. So a few pro tips for this, uh, aesthetics are really, really important to a maintenance business. Um, so, and really allow that to be part of your focus when you, as part of your service is you're not just doing functional things like pulling weeds and cutting some stuff back and adding some compost mulch here. You want it to look nice. Um, and that's part of what people are paying for. So take the time to make it look nice. Also keep the schedule you commit to. Obviously emergencies come up and you have to reschedule things. Everybody understands that. But if you create a pattern of not showing up on time or changing the day, you're throwing the client off. Sometimes clients want to be there when you're there or they or they have other things they're doing. They, they want to hang out outside with their friends and family and know when you're there and when you're not there so so they can leave the outdoor area to you when you come to do the work so keep the schedule you commit to and you might even if you're only seeing a client or two twice a month or once a month or you know on a semi um often basis you might even give them a call ahead of time even though hey you know that it's on the schedule and the agreement is the last friday of every month you're going to show up but hey they might forget they may lose track so you might send him an email on thursday or give him a call and say hey just a reminder i'll be showing up tomorrow um that's always a nice thing and and then as regenerative designers strive for abundance w- manage these landscapes not just for aesthetics but for abundance for food and flower and habitat and wildlife this is the beauty and the opportunity of regenerative design uh, landscape maintenance versus the regular kind of landscape maintenance that is known so much throughout Western cultures is that these can be absolute paradise gardens. And so when we're approaching maintenance from a regenerative point of view, we're really looking at soil health. We're really looking at plant health. We're looking at biodiversity. We're looking at increasing all those ecological relationships and connections so that the the land can just come alive and thrive in the most abundant way possible. So have that be one of your goals for your landscapes because I tell you it is going to spread like wildfire if you are managing landscapes that are like paradise gardens for their clients, they're going to tell their friends and their family, the neighbors are going to see and and soon you'll have more work than you could even handle. At that point then you need to decide do I hire somebody? Am I the type of person that I want to have staff and be managing staff? Or, am I, or do I want to run a business where I'm just out there doing the work? Because that's what I love to do. Those are questions that, you, that you'll have to ask yourself related to your context as you find success. And I hope you do. And I know you will um, if you stick with it. I just want you to know that I really, truly believe in you. I believe in your ability to create a regenerative business for yourself. And I hope that this talk has given you some tools and some inspiration and some empowerment to go start, whether it's consultation and design, whether it's a maintenance business, whether it's installation, which is much more involved, but probably the most profitable of the three. Um, I know that you can do this and I have done it before. And... You just need to remember that you got. To just start small. It's okay to start out small um, and grow from there. It takes time. You, it's really important to be patient when you're starting out with any kind of business. Um, I've started now five different businesses in my life, and I can tell you that it takes about five years for a business to mature and have a life of its own. That's five years of perseverance five years of patience five years of of leaning into the slow times and there's going to be slow times and i many years uh in the early part of permaculture artisans every winter when the slow time hit and financial stress came in and 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 i just so many times I thought I should just let this go. I I should just quit, move on to something else, go work for someone else. It's too hard, I can't do it. Um, But one of the things that happens in those slow periods is you really gain clarity about your mission, your purpose, who you are, the kind of work you wanna do in the world. And so I I wanna support you that as you start your business and, and you start to hit some of those road bumps and you get into those slow periods, really lean into those slow times as like sacred opportunities to gather clarity, gather clarity about where you are in this, how you want to emerge out of this slow time. And I, I am so grateful that I stuck with my business during those slow times because now it has a life of its own and now it's thriving beyond what I ever could have imagined. And I know that can be it for you. I just, We live in this culture where we want short-term satisfaction. We want things to happen quickly. And that is just not realistic when it comes to starting a business, a business of your own. It's just not realistic. And so don't be afraid of it, you know, lean into it. Um, Know it'll take time and let it, let it grow you as you grow it. And, um, and, and you will, you will be successful in this work. So I'm Eric Olson. If you want to learn more about me or my work, I've got the three websites here, Olson.com, permacultureartisans.com, Um, I do have an online school, the Eco Landscape Mastery School. And if you are really excited about starting a regenerative design business, whether it's consultation, design, installation, maintenance, my program is totally self-paced there's hundreds of hours of content. I literally give you the design proposal template. I literally give you the estimation workbook so that you can start your business. You have all of the infrastructure, the business side infrastructure to get your business going. And then as part of the eco landscape mastery school, you'll, you'll go through all the different modules to start and sustain a business, but a landscape business. But then we also have all of these um, guests that have come on over the last few years. Um, so we will talk gray water, we'll talk carbon farming, we'll talk regenerative agroforestry, we'll talk irrigation systems, gray water systems, black water systems, we'll talk project management and design process, and we'll, we'll, we, we've met with all these experts And it's all there for you at the Ecolandscape Mastery School. So you can find that at permacultureskillcenter.org if that's interesting to you, if you want to have that as as a a resource to grow and build out your business um, from here on. I've also written a bunch of books and I just, I share a couple here with you. I wrote a children's book about forest fires Um, where I live right now. We've had four straight years of catastrophic wildfire in my community. And uh, and and all the children are deeply affected by this. So That's why I wrote that book to help uh, impart some fire ecology understanding about the role of fire, uh, both for adults and children. And then I've got the Eco Landscape Professional book. This is just a short overview of some of the things we talked about here about getting out there, starting your ecological landscape business, and going for it. I really hope you enjoy the Our Future Conference. I'm grateful to get to speak to you today and and share my experience with you. I hope you stay in touch. All the best on your adventures.
0: Thank you so much for listening. Eric has been a teacher in all my courses. I've highlighted his work for many years because he does such excellent work. He is one one of the people that has been a mentor to me and inspired me as well. If you want to learn more stories about our future more stories about permaculture in general subscribe like share click the link below and join us in our future 2022 this january next month and you will be included in seven days over 40 speakers i think it's going to get to over 70 speakers that are going to show us what is possible help us see the future at a much more regenerative hopeful and inspiring level So join us. It's going to be awesome. It's the best way to start 2022. Grow abundantly, learn daily, and live regeneratively. I'm Matt Powers. See you next time.